Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to Left of Straight Show, guys. It is Tuesday, June 30th, 2020, the last day of Pride Month. Woohoo! I hope you guys were taking some time to enjoy Pride. It really was a little bit different this year as we combined with Black Lives Matter, and that's a good thing. We turned it into what Pride originally was, which was protest and solidarity and claiming equal rights and helping each other. So I'm excited about that. If you didn't hear, my name is Scott Fullerton. I'm your host. In the control room today, we have my intern, Han. She's pressing all the buttons and making us look and sound good today. Thanks to Han over there. Guys, I hope you're having a great start to the week. Yesterday, we kicked off with a fantastic Music Monday show, as we do every Monday. Our special correspondent, Jay Knight, called in with his Monday Music Minute, and Jay always features a great independent artist tip and an artist you may not have heard of, and we had a great introduction to that last night. Then we had on for the first time Nick Meadows. Nick is a triple M threat. He's a model, he does makeup, and he's a musician. He sings. He has over 138,000 Instagram followers for his makeup tutorials. He's done makeup for some of the coolest people on the planet for weddings and everything else like that. And he has branched into his own brand and style. He has his own jewelry, his own clothing, and now he is into music, which is what he started out with in college and has two great songs out that we featured last night. And then we finished it up with my buddy Hayden Joseph. Uh, Nick is in LA. Hayden Joseph's in Nashville. He just moved to Nashville from San Francisco to pursue his songwriting career. Hayden's been on the show before. He's a great country Western voice in singing and songwriting. And we talked a little bit about his move. He didn't even have his couch yet. He just moved in there three days ago back to Nashville. So we had a great chance to talk with Hayden. So if you missed last night's live show, go to any of your podcast distributors and download it. You can find us on Spotify and iHeartRadio, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. And while you're there, do me a favor and hit the little subscribe button. And if you really want to do me a favor, give us a little five-star review there. The better, more reviews we get, the higher we go up in the search rankings and people will be able to find the show like all of you have. So I appreciate that. Tonight for you, 
couple of great interviews. We're going to start off in just a couple of minutes with my buddy Adam Rothenberg from the Call Me Adam blog, blog, and website. He'll be doing our Tuesday Entertainment Minute from New York City in just a couple of seconds with me live. And then live, my first guest is Rosemary Ketchum. She just made history when she was elected the very first transgendered council person in any elected office in all of the state of West Virginia. And she was elected to city council in Wheeling, West Virginia on June 9th. So we're going to have a live interview with her. And then we're going to finish up with a pre-taped interview I did yesterday with Dr. Eric Cervini. Eric is a LGBTQ historian. He has written a fantastic new bestseller all about the LGBTQ rights movement starting back in the 60s and 50s. And we had a great sit down yesterday uh, talking about his book. So we're going to have him on at the end. So great show today. I'm looking forward to it. So sit back and enjoy. We'll be here all week long. If you're not following on Instagram to keep up and know who we're doing, be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at left of straight. That's L E F T O F S T R and the number eight, or you can follow Han and the other interns at Left of Straight Radio. Uh, also on Facebook, we have the Left of Straight Radio Facebook page that the interns are watching, the Left of Straight Show page that I have, and my personal account is Scott Fullerton. Go ahead and send me a friend request. I love to say hi when you have a chance. Big gay road trip, big gay news going on. California is having some issues with COVID, and so we're seeing what's happening right now. We may have to postpone the big gay road trip and all my guests. Planning on be there for a month of shows at the Indulge Resort in Palm Springs. As you guys might have heard, Los Angeles County closed down all the bars again on Sunday. Uh, Riverside County, which is where Palm Springs is in, is on a recommend to close down. So they're getting ready to do it any minute now. So we may have to postpone the road trip, which I'm very, very sad about because I was supposed to leave on Sunday. So I will keep you up with that. You will know that as we speak. I've been working my little bunnies off getting ready for it. Yesterday was a day, boys and girls. I did seven interviews all over the country. I had uh, a look over my nine interns' work they did last week. Had to make two meals for my mom, and I did two loads of laundry. It was crazy. I did an interview last night at midnight to Australia, which was actually freaking fantastic. He was a, a runner-up in The Voice Australia and has a magnificent voice, and I'll have that for you later in the week. But let's get to it. There's lots going on in entertainment right now, and I'm so excited to have our special correspondent, Adam Rothenberg, on direct from New York City. You know him, of course, from the Call Me Adam blog website and all that great stuff over there. So let's bring Adam on, and we'll see how he's doing. Adam, buddy, how you doing, man? I don't see you in studio. Can let Adam in. There he is. Now he can hey. play. <laughs> hey, buddy. How you doing? Good. How are you? I am good. Uh, where I'm heading is closing down as you're starting to open up a little bit in New York. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Where, where exactly are you in the midst of your road trip? I have not left yet. I'm supposed to leave Sunday, Adam, and go for a ah. week of travel, then four weeks at the resort. 
but they're closing everything down in LA and Palm Springs is next on the list. So I may have to cancel. I'm going to decide oh, by no. Thursday. I, I know. I'm very sad. Forward to it. I am so sad. That's I, I really am, but we'll see. Got to be yeah. safe. I mean, I have had a couple of yes. guests that don't want to go out there and I totally understand that. Sam Harris from Star Search, of course, has a 13-year-old kid. He doesn't want to go out there right now because he doesn't want to get his family sick. And there's a couple other people that just don't want to make it because I usually – in Palm Springs is so hot, it's like averaging 107 right now. So we oh, usually do the shows in my room and then go play mm-hmm. in the pool. And there's no point being six feet apart in my room trying to do it or, or doing a show with masks on and being right next to each other. So it, exactly. it's a little difficult logistically right now. How are yeah. you holding up, my yeah. friend? How's your week been? Uh, it's been good. I mean, you know, all, all things considering. Um, they did just announce yesterday, which I guess all your listeners know, but in case they don't, Broadway is shut down for the rest of the year. Um, so sad. So it is. It is. So many so many people out of work. And, um, you know, I mean, the government's not really doing a lot for the arts. So... Um, and then, you know, that spirals into all the restaurants and, you know, tourism and everything that Broadway brings to New York City. Sure. All that business is is lost, too. So um, it's going to be a difficult, uh, continue to be a difficult time for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's so sad when I saw that, Yesh. I mean, we knew it was probably going to happen. But we weren't yeah. exactly sure, and uh, it's just uh, like you said, it's a lifeblood, and who knows what's going to? Are they going to bring out small clubs? Are we going to able to have singer songwriters go out again? Are we gonna be able to have comedians go on again? It's just, it's a whole new world right now. I just don't know what's going to happen. It is, and there's still. I mean, thankfully, there's still a lot of content being streamed and a lot of things to watch. Um, I mean, it's, it's not the same as as watching a show live, but at least it's something. Right. And, and on the, and on the positive side, I mean, I think a lot of these um, shows and, and specials that are being streamed are, are, are getting a much wider audience than if it was just live. So, um, you know, that's something to take into consideration whenever Broadway comes back that, you know, maybe there's a way to do live performance, but still, keep some of the streaming going right and i love some of the uh, i've been seeing some of the the shots on tv of like orchestras playing to an empty theater but they put like plants in there and things between yes and it's kind of cute really i mean if they social distance that way that would be kind of a good way to see they just got to figure out how to make money off of it but i like the way they've set up a couple of the theaters it is kind of cute Yes. And I mean, I think, you know, I mean, uh, Lincoln Center, um, the Arts Library, I mean, they have they, so many Broadway shows are filmed for archives. Um, and I mean, I think that there has to be a way somehow that they could, you know, unarchive all this footage that they have and stream it. And I mean, maybe somehow with the Actors Fund or Broadway Cares, maybe there's a way to get um, people who were involved in those productions maybe get a residual or something from the streaming, but they have, I mean, right. so many shows and so many great shows that, that people didn't get to see, whether it closed early or they weren't born when the show took place 
um, or they weren't in New York. But um, I know I remember Carrie Butler posting on Twitter or or Instagram about how it would be great to have all that footage, you know, stream somewhere and somehow get the actors and the musicians and everybody involved get some kind of pay for it. And I mean, I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think so. I agree a hundred percent. I mean, these, these streams that we talked about are amazing streams. I was just talking to um, one of the organizers of world pride. Of course, this weekend we had some great pride events everywhere world pride being one of them, but none of those yeah. artists were paid for that or anything. And even the people that put it on the producers weren't paid for it. So they're doing hair and makeup and situating their apartments and buying green screens and putting out money and not making any money whatsoever just to help the community yeah. out. And yeah. I I would love to know how Hamilton's doing it this week through Disney if the actors are making any money through that. That would be interesting to know. I mean, I think I I thought I read something that there's some kind of residual that they're going to um that that the actors are going to get from it. I don't know the details, but I thought one of the papers reported that they're uh, if if the talks haven't finished, they're like in talks about how that can be. Right. So, no, I think I mean, that's I think a great a, idea. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I no, I was gonna say I think it's a great idea that that um, that you know they're you they they filmed it and it's gonna be um, on Disney Plus. I mean, I I never got to see Hamilton, so I'm very excited to be able to watch it this way. And you know, I, it's gonna be able to reach a much wider audience this way too. And I think even though, you know, there's been, there were so many tours in addition to the Broadway production, I mean, Disney plus is just going to reach millions of people. So I hope. Well, yeah. And the the tickets prices were even on tour ticket prices were starting at 75 to a hundred bucks. And what's Disney plus nine bucks for a month or something or 12 bucks for a month. So you can't make that more affordable. Yeah, exactly. It makes it much more to watch and you get a much bigger audience so hopefully they have worked something out or they are working something out that everyone involved there could get some kind of residual from from the the viewing so um that would be great for them yeah that would be great and like you said there's so much great content out there i was excited the other day um pbs is where is airing holland taylor's um one woman show about Ann oh, Richards, Anne. which I yes. love. Yeah. So I PBS is airing that or, now. Yes. I think that was like a week or two ago that it, it premiered on PBS. But that was a great, great, if they're still showing it and um, and on wherever you live, definitely watch it. I mean, Holland Taylor was incredible as Ann Richards. I, I got to see it when it was on Broadway, and it was just fantastic. Ooh. Nice. Yeah, and, I love um, her, I, and I, I love both women. I love Holland Taylor, and I love Ann Richards. God bless her soul. She was fantastic yes. legislature. Yes. Well, yes, dude, you've been killing it with your interviews lately. Talk about Call Me oh, Adam for a you. bit. You've been just doing some fantastic, but I've been listening to every single one. Amazing people. Uh, give us a couple of uh, people on tap who you have coming up. Thank you. Um, well, I just released uh, my interview with uh, Charles Bush and we actually talked about his um, in addition to being 
a, a great theater artist and, you know, he's a Tony nominee and I mean, legendary in theater, but we didn't talk about any of his performing stuff. We actually talked about his um, other side of his artistry, his painting and drawing that he has never talked about before. So it was like, I got like this exclusive interview with him, which was fantastic. Um, wow. I also um, got to, um, Elisa Stevens, she is the COO of Spotco, which is the number one Broadway advertising agency in New York City. And I used to work there. And she and I did this great interview because she's the um, first female black COO of Spotco. So we talked about her um, her her um, career there. And she's also the mother of a bisexual daughter. So for Pride, we talked about that about her daughter coming out and her reaction to it so those were two great interviews that I was very very proud of and um Graham Jay he's a uh, a singer um primarily he's sung like opera jazz but now he's moving more into pop and he um we had a great talk he's he's only 40 and he uh has already suffered three heart attacks in his life and he lost his husband oh my suicide yes so uh, we had a lot to talk about with that. Um, and so that was definitely more of a, like a serious conversation, but it was great that he was, he was very open. Um, and then uh, I have two interviews coming up um, that, are, that are just finishing up the editing process. One uh, that's going to be coming out soon is with um, David Joseph Burke, who was, um, he's known for uh, playing Abraham in Alter Boys. And he was just, um, in Beetlejuice on Broadway, he uh, took over the oh, role nice. of Adam Maitland, um, and uh, we talk about Beetlejuice. We talk about Alter Boys, and uh, we also talk about this um, new business that he's developing, which is going to be a fantastic business. Um, that episode is on Thursday on the Broadway Podcast Network, and um, I'm also working on an interview with um, Rachel Sage. She's a alt pop. Um, singer-songwriter, and her interview should be coming out sometime next week, and, and we talked about um, her journey with um, uterine cancer and her new album inspired by her recovery from cancer, uh, which, was, which was really great as well. So those are coming up, and, um, and, you know, as always, the Broadway Podcast Network has over 70 arts and theater-related podcasts, so there's a lot of hours of listening on there, and I always encourage your listeners to check everybody out on there. So we, we have a lot of great content there. Definitely, definitely. Well, we got to wrap this up, Adam. You know I love it. The All last right. thing I'll talk real quick about, I am excited that I did read today that Stonewall Tavern got a quarter of a million dollar grant to stay open. There was a possibility they may have to shut it down with everything going on in COVID, no business. But they look like they got a grant today from the Gill Foundation. So that's pretty oh, that's exciting wonderful. News, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, such an institution. I'm so happy that, that they're going to make it. Exactly. Well, Adam, you know, I especially love in Pride Month. Month. Exactly. Pride Month, we're ending it with a bang with one of yes. my favorite guys. Adam, let them know where they can find oh. Call Me Adam at all the platforms, please. Uh, you can find me on social media at Call Me Adam. NYC, Facebook, Instagram, 
Twitter and my podcast, Bearing It All with Call Me Adam, is on the Broadway Podcast Network. So they can just go to broadwaypodcastnetwork.com. Fantastic. Stay on the line for me. Guys, we'll take a music break. And when we come back, I'm going to be talking to the first transgender elective office in all of West Virginia. The wonderful Rosemary Ketchum is here. She was just elected to Wheeling, West Virginia City Council. We're going to have a live interview in just a couple minutes. Play out to little Matt Van Fossen, and we'll see you on the other side, right here on the Left Radio Network.
All righty, guys, we are back. That was Matt Van Fossen from Time Ain't What It Used To Be. Guys, I'm so excited for our next guest. She has made history by becoming the first transgendered elected politician in the entire state of West Virginia. It's just a short drive up the Ohio River for me here in Northeast Ohio. And she grew up not too far from me, raised by working class parents. They didn't have a lot, but what little they did have was literally gone in a puff of smoke when a house fire destroyed their home. After a bit, her mother moved her and her brothers to Wheeling, West Virginia. And after graduating high school there, she dove headfirst into joining organizations and boards and just started to become a larger part of the community where she called home. She graduated from college with a bachelor's degree in psychology. And after all that hard work and seeing what the city needed from her, she decided to rise to the occasion and run for city council ward three representative. And guess what? She won. So welcome to the show for the very first time, Miss Rosemary Ketchum. Rosemary, how you doing? Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm doing well. I am excited to have you on. Congratulations. I feel like such a very small cog. Somehow we're MSNBC, NBC, People Magazine, Time Magazine. You're a famous person. (laughs) (laughs) Did you believe it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. Has it sunk in yet? You officially uh, won the election back on June 9th. Your first day is tomorrow. Thanks for spending the night here with us. What do you think about this whirlwind trip? Yes, a whirlwind is a great way to describe it. You know, I ran a very grassroots campaign and and focused on the issues. And, you know, we ran a race that was uh, a year long. And for so many city council races, they aren't more than four months long. (laughs) But we knew we had a lot of work to do to engage our community and do some really important work. And it paid off. Well, it certainly did. And I love your commitment to it. Your website was amazing. You were very detailed in your plans. I want to go into your background because that kind of led to you for what needed to be go to council because you were doing a lot of really good work to begin with in the community. But let's start even earlier back growing up. Um, Talk about where you grew up and what kind of a kid were you? Yeah, so I grew up in East Liverpool, Ohio. We moved around a bit, but my most formative years were spent in East Liverpool. And, you know, my dad grew up there and my mom, you know, lived there for, for much of her childhood. And, you know, my childhood was, I think, very simple and, and blue collar. My, my dad worked local uh, uh, Homer Lachlan China factory and my mom was a waitress on and off, um, you know, throughout my childhood. So, you know, we did not have a lot for sure. But, you know, East Liverpool was a place where, you know, there is poverty and, and you know, comparatively, we were doing okay. Um, and, you know, growing up transgender anywhere is, you know, somewhat of a struggle. But I think growing up transgender in rural Ohio is, you know, particularly interesting. Um, And so, thank God my parents were very thoughtful. And while they may not have had the tools in their toolbox to, you know, really, um, you know, raise a transgender kid, they, they they, they did a pretty good job, I think. 
That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, it's a very interesting area for those that don't know it. I mean, I guess that was a big China manufacturing area there. I'm from California, originally in a transplant here, so kind of learned a little bit about the history. But if you guys had that colorful little Fiesta Ware stuff, you know where we're from because they make it here, right? Exactly. That's crazy. Well, talk about when did you first, I mean, we just had Pride Month. We're finishing it up today. When did you first come out to yourself, and when did you kind of first find your LGBTQ community? Yeah, so I didn't, like most, like some uh, trans folks, I do not have a coming out story, not to my, you know, family or my friends. Um, I, you know, kind of felt that they they knew something was something was up before I did. Um, but I, I, I was probably <laughs> around four or five years old when I can remember feeling different than my two younger brothers or feeling different than the other, you know, kids my age, um, other boys my age. And so, uh, however, I was a pretty unapologetic kid, and I I really didn't care what my self-expression, you know, how it made other people feel, and I just went with it. Um, And my parents, you know, bless their heart, they were, you know, um, they just thought that I was just a kid, you know, expressing themselves in a unique way and they didn't really put parameters around it and and they kind of That's thought it awesome. was a phase a lot of trans folks yeah <laughs> a lot of trans folks you know live with the uh you know the phrase well it's just a phase and my parents you know gotcha. kind of repeated that to themselves often because they they thought kids are kids but you know it turned out not to be a phase and, and it became more intense as i grew up of course and then when did you kind of, I mean, I bet, like I said, I've been in the area. When were you able to kind of find uh, an LGBTQ tribe and feel a part of a community? Yeah. So it was, it was a long time before that happened, especially, you know, for trans folks, I think it, there's a particular uh, difficulty kind of engaging in the community because, you know, for, for so long, you know, the, the kind of archetype for the LGBT community in media and culture, uh, you know, was television shows like Will and Grace and Queer as Folk. And, you know, those, right. while those were really culturally significant and I think did a lot to promote the LGBT community, they didn't portray trans folks very often. And if they did, usually it was in a kind of traumatic or sordid way. And... And so the perception of trans people, I'm 26 years old, this was like late 90s, early 2000s, you know, it wasn't flattering and, it, you know, it didn't set trans people up for positive experiences moving forward. So right. I did not find, you know, my organized or strong LGBT community until I was really in my mid-20s um, here in Wheeling when I really met some folks who, you know, had similar experiences and, and visions for their own community um, similar to mine. Oh, that's great. I'm, I'm, it takes a while. Like you said, it's very hard. And we're, I think that's one of the things we've learned in all this through Black Lives Matter and through a pride where you're, it's not a festival. I think we've kind of got rid of the uh, Budweiser tables at the uh, main stage. <laughs> and we're actually kind of reuniting what's important to us and how this whole movement started with black trans gender women mm-hmm. sticking up for us in Stonewall and moving from there. And I think we're really starting to embrace the community 
Um, bisexual community has always been marginalized, transgender, and I think we're really kind of learning mm-hmm. that that can't be the case anymore, right? Absolutely. I think, you know, the history of pride is less about a rave and more about a riot. And unfortunately, too few of our young LGBT folks really uh, grasp the history in a comprehensive way. You know, we, we might know the word Stonewall, but we really don't know what happened. Or we might know, we might have heard of Marsha P. Johnson, but we really don't understand the history or the implications there. Uh, and, I, you know, I know many young uh, LGBT people who aren't familiar at all with the HIV epidemic, the AIDS um, crisis in the 80s. And so while right. it's incredibly important to be proud and progressive and wave our flags, uh, you know, very similar to what's happening in the Black Lives Matter movement, we need historical context and we need to make sure that we are not just teaching history, but exposing history for what it really was, not what corporations or, you know, governments or whomever, not what they would like us to understand or believe about history, but what it really was. And I think, especially in the LGBT community, we have a lot of work to do to kind of set out, you know, what we really do need to focus on um, and and carry that forward because we, we still have a lot of work to do. Well said, and that's why I'm so excited about tonight's show is we have you as the future of the possibilities of what can be. Then my next guest, we're going to have Dr. Eric Servini on that wrote a book on the history, which is exactly what you said. People don't know what's going on. And he did it because when he first saw the movie Milk as a young kid, he had no idea what that mm. history was. So he wrote a book about it, and I right? think it's important to get it out there. But we have folks such as yourself that are now showing what the possibilities are and that there is no limit. Mm. And I'm excited about that. So this is an exciting show for me. Let's talk about your journey first by going to college and your mental health, your psychology degree. Talk about the mm-hmm. business side first, because that really kind of got you interested or was a stepping stone towards your politics, right? For sure. I definitely, you know, mental health has been a through line in my life. Uh, and, you know, my family has struggled with mental health and addiction and, you know, all of those implications, I think, make for, um, you know, a really important perspective. You know, I'm coming from a lens of lived experience. And so I, you know, knew I always wanted to study psychology. I'm fascinated by, you know, human behavior, why we do what we do, why we think what we think. Uh, and so that was never a question for me, although, I didn't know what I was going to do with a degree in psychology. You know, for a long time, I I thought I may be a journalist, um, but I soon realized that journalists have to maintain some kind of, you know, um, unbiased objectivity. And I I don't have that, um, uh, that willpower or that self-control. You know, I thought, yeah. So I thought, you know, I would really love to work in community organizing and advocacy and in particular mental health advocacy. So I went to school for psychology. Um, I went to uh, Northern Commu- West Virginia Northern Community College here and then graduated from uh, Wheeling Jesuit University. And I was lucky enough to get a job in my field while I was in college. Um, I'm the associate director of um, the National Alliance on Mental Illness here in, in the city of Wheeling. We have a, a drop-in center for clients. And, you know, it's been some of the greatest work um, that I've ever, I've ever done, and it makes me proud and, and, and humble every single day. Uh, and and it's, a, it's experience that I am very excited to bring uh, into elected office. I can imagine. And it's just, it's such an important 
subject to begin with because mental mental health is so important in general, and we've been West Virginia in particular has been hard hit mm. by addiction specifically, mm-hmm. which kind of brings its own form of mental health issues along with it. And you've really had that kind of, I guess, background to see what the underpinnings are of the city because you kind of deal with it firsthand, right? Yeah. You know, coming from the perspective of community organizer and advocate, you know, I really do, you know, I, I, I think I, I understand in a unique way the kind of community that we, you know, have here and the tools that we need and the tools that we, you know, should learn to utilize uh, in a different way. And so being able to bring that to, I think, elected office is unique because, you know, I, I never wanted to run for office or I never thought that I could because the folks who were politicians didn't look like me or live like me or, you know, seem to want the same things as, as I did. So I just never was a, it just never occurred to me that it could be that I was allowed to run for office for some reason. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't have a law degree. And I thought, well, geez, Louise, if you're going to write law, you should probably, you know, have a, a law degree. But I realize in retrospect that we probably need more diversity in lived experience and occupation in, you know, in elected office. You know, we've been electing lawyers for right. centuries and, you know, look where it's got us. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, well said. but, uh, I, I think we, we have a lot of work to do to increase representation and empower people who do have a diverse lived experience, both in, in their personal life, but also in their professional life. I love that. And I like your commitments that you've made your constituents. Uh, I'll never hide from a tough conversation because I'm sure you've had many of those. I will host, <laughs> organize, and fund positive community engagement activities, which I think is the best, most important part of being an active civic leader. Mm-hmm. And I will continue to advocate for the safety, security, and future of the third ward at every turn. I mean, well said on you for those. How do you think, um, how did that resonate with? your constituents what was the council person like before that did you see that kind of engagement in Mm. the community or uh, where how did you see that need and know that you were the one that you could fill it my life has been full of tough conversations and awkward encounters and you know it's something i've never really been been able to get away from and something i've you know begun to embrace um, I, I, I love having tough conversations and un- uncomfortable conversations because, truthfully, I feel that's where we learn the most as human beings, when we feel uncomfortable and we're, we're trying to find our words and the right language. And, and so I, I brought that to campaigning as a candidate. Uh, you know, door knocking was, is and uh, was one of my favorite, you know, parts of campaigning. Unfortunately, we couldn't do as much because of COVID-19. Um, you know, thank God we started early. But uh, what, what people would, you know, remind me or people would express to me was that they oftentimes had never had a candidate or politician knock on their door, and they've never been to an event where the, the, the candidate or politician was the host or the organizer. And that's my background, coming from organizing protests and assemblies and lobby days uh, at the Capitol and so it's just, it's, I feel like I'm in my element when I'm organizing. And so to, to really see folks try to consider 
that a politician could actually do those things was fascinating for me um, because I, I hopefully we get to re- redefine what it means to be a politician and what it looks like to, to represent a community. It, it, we don't have to be establishment and kind of button up in, in the way that, you know, for centuries and <laughs> we seem to have done. Um, I think we right. can really have an inspired um, uh, electoral base in this country. And I think that really starts with, with uh, local politics. Uh, and so hopefully this bit of national media attention that we're getting here in Wheeling can really, I think, snowball into something, something great. I think so. And I think you are a, a terrific spokesperson for your city. The city is gorgeous. People that may not know, I mean, this is a natural show, so they don't know where Wheeling is, but you're right on the river. You have some great waterfronts around you. It's an older city, right? Like most of Northeast Ohio in this area mm-hmm. is very industrial, but the potential mm-hmm. is just huge. The downtown has gorgeous buildings right along there. What do you talk, brag about your city a bit, and what do you see as your potential to bring back to the city? Oh, my gosh. Thank you for giving me that opportunity. Yes, so Wheeling, West Virginia is an incredible place. Our, our city moniker is the friendly city, and we seem to embrace that all the time. We're a quirky little uh, town in the northern panhandle of West Virginia. Uh, we have so many incredible amenities. We have um, uh, a park called Ogilvy park that is one of the largest um, um, state parks in the country and we have it right here in the city of Wheeling. Uh, we also have the largest symphony for a city our size in the country which is crazy you know uh, we are about about 30,000 people here in the in the city of Wheeling and we have a, a full symphony um, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, we have a suspension bridge that we were talking about uh, before we got on that needs a lot of work but it was once the longest suspension bridge in the in the you know entire on earth um, until <laughs> for six months, I think, but um, we have <laughs> so much opportunity to do good work in a place like Wheeling, West Virginia, because unfortunately many of our systems and institutions are broken uh, like they are across the country. And, and yet I think that, you know, West Virginians are some of the most compassionate, hardest working, resilient people I've ever met. And, I think that we have a unique position to lead the nation in progressive values, in racial justice and LGBTQ rights. And, and I'm so grateful to get the opportunity to help represent those values, you know, you know, in here, here in the city of Wheeling. That is awesome. And I will put Oval Bay's Christmas lights against any candy cane lane (laughs) in any city in all of the country. I spend many yeah. Christmas nights bringing friends there. Uh, this Ogle Bay that she's talking about, they do a great Christmas light display there around the lodge in the city, and it's just a gorgeous display. You spend 15, 30 minutes driving through, and it's fantastic. I love it. Very cool. Well, you are starting tomorrow. What is day one looking like for Miss Rosemary Ketchum? What do you plan on doing day one? Yeah, we have already been working unofficially, um, trying to kind of play catch up and, and prepare for what is going to hit us on day one. We have a lot of work to do. You know, a few a few months before COVID nineteen, uh, we had a hospital shutter its doors um, in in my mm. ward, no less, and it was it it occupied the only inpatient mental health unit crisis unit within seventy five miles, and. 
you know, we have a homeless community that is chronic here in the city of Wheeling, and I believe that mental health and mental illness is a foundational component to so much of the chronic homelessness that we see. And it has been mm-hmm. devastating to not have that resource, that mental health resource in our city. And so I think it was this past Friday, the, the city of Wheeling um, purchased the entire hospital that had shuttered its doors. And, you know, hopefully we can work very, very hard uh, to, act, to create more access to these resources that we no longer have uh, to, you know, help all community members, but most particularly our most vulnerable community members, including our homeless folks. So that's going to be on, uh, that's already on the table on day one. We're going to have a lot of work to do around that. Uh, also, right. justice. I mean, unfortunately, these conversations are coming maybe 50, 75 years too late. But finally, we are having conversations at a local level that involve accountability and, and, and racial justice uh, at all levels, including, you know, uh, law enforcement. So, you know, we are uh, very excited to work on, uh, you know, building, trust building between law enforcement and our community and, and hopefully reforming what our law enforcement actually looks like from a municipal perspective. So many cities are, are thinking about this for the very first time. And, you know, it's going to take some city our size to really lead the charge and say this is what responsible just law enforcement looks like, and I hope that Wheeling can be can be part of that charge. Oh, I love that. That's fantastic. And you guys have the same issue we have here in Youngstown area. You're a, a young woman, and we have trouble keeping the brain drain of keeping our young people mm. in the city, both in Youngstown and there. What do you see in the horizon to try to keep people in the city of Wheeling and attract these young minds like yours? Great. Yeah, great question. I actually just had a meeting this morning about retention. It's, it's one of the most serious problems that, that I think folks don't consider to be the most serious problems because, I mean, just logistically, if we do not have young people to, fun- to help the city function, it's not sustainable. Um, so it's both an economic problem, but also a moral problem. You know, we can't we can't beg young people to stay in a place that isn't good for them or that doesn't offer opportunity for them. Otherwise, it's unfair. You know, and I think for right. years we tried to do that. We tried to shame our young people into staying or coming back to a place that did not offer what they needed as young people, did not offer them an opportunity to thrive. And you know, for so many people, it's a sacrifice to stay in a place like West Virginia that does not offer what other states might. So we have a lot of work to do to build the trust between young people and their communities and also offer what young people need. You know, what young people needed 50 years ago is not at all what young people need today. So a few of those things have been what we spoke, we have spoken about in mental health resources, uh, you know, law enforcement, racial justice, um, a few of the things that I would love to work on include uh, the decriminalization of cannabis here in the city of Wheeling. Um, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we can pass some, some substantive um, legislation around that. Uh, also, mm. you know, creating job opportunities that have remote capabilities. You know, it used to be that you would move to a place so that you could get a good job and never leave your community. But the way the 21st century works is you can have a job in California and live in Wheeling, West Virginia. And, and so we want to be able to re- promote industries that have remote capability 
so that folks can live uh, in a place they love and work for an organization they also love. So it's a comprehensive problem that I think will require some holistic solutions. Um, but again, I think that, you know, I'm young for now. I'm 26. I'll be 30 before long. <laughs> but, um, but I think that we, we, do, we, we have to first offer what young people need, and those are a few of the things I think we can really work on. I love that. And like you said, we are, I mean, if COVID taught us anything is that telecommuting can work if it's, if it's done right. Right. <laughs> exactly. So you can be just about anywhere to do this. Also the thing that I've always kind of talked and I'm trying to be very involved in my community in Youngstown as well, that it's mm-hmm. important. There's such opportunity for small businesses. We have these older downtowns where rent is practically, they're giving away space. And we have these young people with great imaginative minds that can really create businesses. And you can start up relatively cheap and start up a business and even fail and not really hurt yourself too bad. I I would love to see a partnership with the downtowns and the small businesses and the young people to try to give some opportunities that way as well. I just think there's so many possibilities that are out there that we haven't even thought of. It just takes new thinking for people like you and younger people like yourselves. Exactly. Startup programs, economic development opportunities. Yeah, you're absolutely on track. Very, very good. What is maybe the one thing you learned while you were running for office that you weren't expecting or was probably the, the most frustrating stumbling block of what you learned about government, anything that you did not know about government, <laughs> you came to learn during campaigning, like, oh, well, this is stupid. Yeah. <laughs> well, I learn every single day what, you know, what's really happening. And, you know, for me, just, I think acknowledging the inefficiency of government has been really frustrating because, we live in a in the most efficient age in history. Like, I mean, I can I can talk to somebody across the globe in you know 20 seconds. I'm on Twitter, and right. I mean, I'm talking to people I, I will never ever meet in my lifetime. And yet, our governments have no idea how to be efficient or how to do the same work. I mean, so many you know municipalities are functioning on you know a 1988 form of governance. And I, I watched this incredible TED talk. Um, I think it was it was about some mayor, maybe in Albuquerque, I can't remember. He was a former businessman, and he said that um, if if city governments or government in general um, had to compete to survive, uh, they would they would fix all their problems yesterday. Uh, but unfortunately, there's no other city government, you know, startup trying to take our place, and so we can be as inefficient as we <laughs> as we want. Um, and it really, you know, it really reminded me that we have so much work to do to simply improve the function of government, not just here in a, in a city like Wheeling, but in, in this nation, you know. Um, so that's right. a more like broad, specific, you know, thing. But one of the other things while I was campaigning, I realized that, you know, I was a very neurotic candidate. I wanted all the details and I, I wanted to make every <laughs> right move I could. And, you know, knocking doors, I realize that people do not want the details. Inherently, most people do not care about the details of your plan or of your, you know, goals. They, they want right. to know that they can trust you. They want to know that they can mm-hmm. trust that you have their best interest at heart and you, they can get a hold of you and they can hold you accountable. And that was a real kind of 
um, um, that was a real narrative shift for me as a candidate to realize that while the details are crucial and essential, people really want to be able to trust the candidate because politicians for forever have, you know, been cast as untrustworthy, corrupt, X, Y, Z. And while many validate right. that, you know, claim, I think that we can hopefully inspire a new uh, slate of candidates across the country who genuinely want to do good work and, and want to be held accountable. And, and so that's what we're doing here in the city of Wheeling. And I hope that, that other communities can, can work to do the same. I love that. Fantastic. And like I said, there are such great little businesses around. You have a casino there, which my mom thanks. Mama Linda says good job on that. <laughs> you have some great little shops and great little restaurants around town. So there is a lot to do, and that waterfront is amazing. Um, I love the waterfront mm. drive or the the walk you can do along um, right by the river there is amazing. Mm. What um, – what do you see as the logistics going into council tomorrow with COVID? Is there anything that are you guys going to be doing remotely? What is that city council in Wheeling doing right now? Do you know how your job is going to work logistically? Yes, kind of. We, you know, the, the city has been doing remote meetings for the past since March. And I actually feel, I, I, I believe I got a memo that our first meeting uh, will be the first meeting in person since COVID. So we will okay. be doing um, an in-person meeting with masks, but we will have no community um, presence there. Um, I think we will be casting live on Facebook or something like that. Um, but this, you know, COVID has really uh, uh, forced uh, organizations and corporations and communities and governments to get creative fast. Uh, and it just, it just shows you how, you know, oftentimes unprepared we are uh, for, you know, for what life throws at us. I, I think we've done a particularly good job here in the city of Wheeling, but I hope that we can, uh, you know, learn from this and, and hopefully take some of the tools that we've, we've learned to use during this, you know, uh, pandemic um, into the future so that we can, uh, you know, kind of stay creative and adapt more easily. Uh, it's not, I don't think it's going to get any easier necessarily, uh, not, not at least in the next few months, but, but hopefully we can, we can get our message out regardless. There you go. And we all know that we can get things done more effectively and better if we're working together. Has any of your fellow council men or women reached out to you yet and kind of, are you starting to, to find common ground with people of things that you want to work on or is that going to be just a learning process after day one here? Yeah, so the, this election, uh, everyone, um, all the incumbents were up for re-election, and four of them were re-elected, um, three of them um, lost their race. And so it's a, I think it's a healthy mix of, of you know, existing members and new members so that the learning nice. curve is not as steep for everyone. Uh, but, yes, <laughs> I've been meeting with, with all of the members, including the mayor. Um, I have my committee assignments uh, prepared, which is exciting. And I've been able to, I think, really gauge where other folks are at and their priorities. And, and we're very um, parallel in many ways, which can make or break productivity. If you cannot, you know, um, if you're not on the same page as a team, of legislators or city councilors, it's very difficult to get anything done. So I'm, I'm, I'm very hopeful that we, 
we can get some things moving pretty quickly. Nice. And like I said, one of the things I loved about your campaign, looking at over everything, is you're very accessible. Um, how how are you encouraging your ward to get in touch with you and to keep a conversation going? Yeah, I didn't, you know, transparency and accessibility were key components to running my campaign. And, you know, I gave my cell phone number out and my email address and my, you know, my, my home address, everything but my social security number. And I did not (laughs) anticipate that I would, you know, get any national media attention. So I've been getting incredible letters in the mail and phone calls and all of those great things. But I, I now officially have a government email. So my, my government email is rketchum at wheelingwv.gov. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Rosemary Ketchum. And I'm lucky nobody else has my name, apparently, because uh, it's easy to get. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you are interested in learning more or maybe even you yourself are considering running for public office, which I think you should, uh, go ahead and give me a call or, or, you know, look me up on social media. I'd love to chat. There you go. Well, Rosemary Ketchum, you've been an absolute delight. I'm going to drop Mama Linda off at the casino, and we're going to have a socially distanced coffee sometime very soon. (laughs) Oh, I'd love it. Fantastic. Well, stay on the line for you, Rosemary. Anything that you wanted to say before I let you go? Anything that I didn't have a chance to let you get out there? Oh, uh, I am so grateful uh, for this Pride Month. While it has been one of the most convoluted Pride Months I've ever been a part of, you know, we have made history in, in, in more ways than one. And so I'm so grateful to you for, for giving platform, you know, to, to voices like mine. It, it truly means the world. Well, thank you. And well said. I appreciate you so much. We're going to go play out with a little tune. When I come back, we're going to talk about the history that Rosemary and I talked about earlier. We're going to have Dr. Eric Cervini calling in. He's got a brand new book. He is uh, graduated summa cum laude from a little university called Harvard, you might have heard of, and has done some great uh, LGBT historian work. So we'll play a little song back on the other side and stand the line for me, uh, Rosemary. Here we go. Well, I guess it would be nice if I could touch your body. I know that everybody's got a body like you. But I gotta think twice before I give my heart away. And I know all the games you play because I play them too. <laughs> but I need some time off from that emotion. Time to pick my heart up off the floor Ooh, Baby, when love comes down with our devotion Well, it takes a strong man, baby But I'm showing you the door Cause I gotta have faith I gotta have faith No, I gotta have faith to faith to faith I gotta have faith to faith to faith Baby I know you're asking me to stay Say please, please, please don't go away Say you're giving me the blues Maybe But you mean 
every word to say Can't help but think of yesterday And a never who tied me down to a lover boy rose before This river becomes an ocean I forget throw my heart back on the floor Oh, baby, I consider my foolish notion Well, I need someone to hold me But I wish I saw the love Cause you gotta have faith I gotta have faith I gotta have faith to faith to faith I gotta have faith to faith to faith our good buddy Levi Christ with his version of George Michael's face. Guys, I'm so excited to be able to get a break in my next guest's busy schedule before we close out Pride Month. He's an award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus politics and culture, a soon come laude graduate from a little college you may have heard of called Harvard. He received his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge. And he's made himself an authority on gay activism that rose in the 60s and serves on the board of directors of the revived Mattachine Society of Washington, D.C. His new book, The Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, was released at the start of Pride Month. And it was the first time in 27 years that an LGBTQ plus book on history was on the New York Times bestselling list. And the first time ever a trained queer historian made that impressive list. Speaking of impressive, let's welcome to the Leftist Trade Show for the very first time. Please welcome Dr. Eric Savini. Eric, how you doing, buddy? Good. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have you on. You have been busy with this book promotion as you have been. We are celebrating Pride. I'm excited to have you. Have you been able to handle all this and 2020 in general? You doing okay, oh, my friend? Man. Yeah, I mean, this year has been something else, and this month in particular has been a uh, quite an absurd time to be putting out a book, but, you know, I'm so grateful for the conversations we've been having on our, our digital book tour, and, you know, especially with, with the social movement we're seeing with Black Lives Matter, I think it raises so many important uh, questions and conversations about what the LGBTQ plus community uh, should be doing now, especially as we celebrate the Supreme Court decision and look forward to the continuing fight. Exactly. So well said. And I'm really excited to have you on here as we wrap up Pride Month because it has shifted a bit. We'll talk about that in the end because I think it's going in a positive direction. I've been talking about 
the importance of our LGBT history since I started the show back five years ago. We only have 30 minutes, so I usually do a lot of background on my guests and kind of an overarching interview. But today, I really want to concentrate on pride and history as we wrap up the month. So let's go ahead and start off with what was piqued your interest in the history of the LGBTQ plus community and how did it or when did it become important to you? Well, I was an undergraduate who thought I was going to law school. I thought I was going to study political science. I had a very uh, clear cut path of, in front of me. And then I happened to take a, a, an urban history class uh, where, you know, I needed to write a paper. And just at that exact moment, by complete coincidence, I happened to watch uh, Milk uh, by Oscar winning screenwriter Dustin Lance Black. Mm. And was just shocked as a you know 19 or 20 year old that I just had no idea about this story that I hadn't been taught it uh, in either high school or in college. And it really got me wondering, you know, what other stories are out there that I didn't know that the world doesn't know about the LGBTQ plus community. And one of the first names that I recognized, or rather didn't recognize, but saw as a, a, a figure who deserved his own book, who deserved his own place in history, was Dr. Frank Hameny, who historians have long regarded as the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but never has had his own book until now. And so seven years later, here we are, we finally have a book about, about Frank Hameny, and uh, I'm so grateful to be able to share his story and uh, the story of America in the decade before the Stonewall riots. Well, good on you for doing it, my friend. Let's start with a little basic about yesterday's historic date being the exact anniversary of the first Pride March in New York City. Tell us a little bit about that history for those that are still a little not sure what's co- what this was all about. Right. Well, a lot of people know about the Stonewall riots, which were the end of June, almost exactly 51 years ago. Uh, 1969, really the first time that at least the media covered a violent resistance to police oppression of the homosexual and gender nonconforming minority. And so we know about those riots, but what's so interesting about Pride is the very first Pride march was actually the year after in commemoration of those riots in uh, June of 1970. So yesterday was the exact to the day 50 year anniversary of the world's first Pride March, uh, which happened on June 28th, uh, 1970. And, you know, I, I think what's so important is to understand that the March Pride began as an act of resistance. It was not like the Macy's Day Parade like we have today. Uh, it was right. very much a, a march that was open to everyone that was fighting for the rights of the gay and LGBTQ plus minority. And, you know, that's what I think we need to bring back is that spirit of resistance of fighting for those we have left behind in our own movement, because the fight is really far from over. Right, exactly. And I love that we shared that. And I love that New York kind of commemorated that yesterday. There was a little bit of issues going on there, which uh, hopefully we'll get that sorted out. But uh, there's still a long way to go, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I need to get into this book. You've done so good. Based on firsthand accounts, recently declassified FBI records, and 40,000 personal documents. Talk about the research for this, my friend. 
Well, Frank Kameny, you know, he was really the first to fight back on so many fronts. He was the first to file a Supreme Court petition for gay rights. He was first to testify in Congress as an openly gay man. He was first to demonstrate outside of the White House for gay rights. Along the way, he kept every single letter that he ever sent or received, every document, every meeting minutes, everything he kept. He called himself Packrat. And so his collection is now stored at the Library of Congress. It's the largest individual LGBTQ plus collection in the world uh, with hundreds of thousands of documents. And I had the honor of, of spending several weeks digging through uh, the papers, digitizing over 100,000 pages of documents, and then spent really the next seven years going through them uh, and trying to understand exactly what he was doing how he fought the way he did, why was he so brave to do what he did, and also who influenced him, right? Looking at other people in the 1960s, including Bayard Rustin, the gay black man who organized the 1963 March on Washington, looking at people like Stokely Carmichael, all these figures within the black freedom movement who were inspiring and guiding uh, the the, the strategies of the very new pre-Stonewall gay rights movement. That's amazing. I love that. And what did you find? I mean, as you said, you didn't really know a lot of LGBT history, decided to delve into it. What did you kind of find most fascinating to you or something that you just really weren't expecting? Well, I think the most shocking thing that I found was the FBI was really obsessed with the gay activists in the decade before Stonewall. So Frank Hamney created an organization which was really – Uh, uh, America's first gay rights lobby or organization in Washington, D.C. called the Mattachine Society, his group only really had a maximum of 40 or so members. But the FBI was so preoccupied with this organization, so obsessive about homosexuals in Washington, D.C., discovering who they were, exposing them, having them purged from their jobs. They had a 1,000-page FBI file on these activists. So they were of surveilling them, of following them, of infiltrating them, and then also of destroying them. And so I wrote my entire master's dissertation on the FBI surveillance of of gay activists. And I think it sheds a lot of light now as we're up against a federal government, which is once again devoted to destroying our community, uh, the lengths to which they will go in order to infiltrate and destroy us. And I think it, it sheds so much light on how vigilant we need to be today. I bet. Goodness gracious. Yeah, I did not know much of that at all. I've only uh, just purchased a book the other day. I haven't got it yet. So I'm really excited to look into that because I love LGBTQ plus history. Talk about mm-hmm. um, Madison Society and you're kind of working to bring it back again. What are the goals you're trying to set forth now? You're an advisory on this uh, board. Talk about what your hopes are for it. Well, I think if there's anything that I hope people take away from the book, it's that we borrowed not just Stonewall, but we borrowed the totality of what we now celebrate as pride from the Black Freedom Movement. Every step of the way, whether it's declaring that homosexuality is a moral good, gay is good, that was borrowed from Black is Beautiful. So we borrowed the entirety of pride from the Black Freedom Movement, and we have gay rights because of trans women of color going beyond what they did at Stonewall. They were the first 
to put their bodies on the line, not just at Stonewall, but afterwards. Sylvia Rivera, a trans woman of color, was the first person to get arrested in the Gay Activists Alliance in 1970 for a gay rights bill in the New York City Council, right? Because of her, the Gay Activists Alliance became a legally oriented organization that sprang off uh, uh, Lambda Legal, which became the first to fight for gay, for gay marriage. So we have to be talking about these figures who really have been erased in our, the telling of our own history and who were really the first to fight for us, but also the first to be forgotten. Here, here. I love that. That is fantastic. And talk about, there's got to be a little bit of joy now seeing the culmination together of us joining with the Black Lives Movement in today's day and age. I mean, we saw a great um, coming together in Los Angeles and New York. It's happening all over the country. And we've mm-hmm. really had kind of two separate com- communities for a long time. And I think we are really starting to come together here. What do you feel? Do you feel kind of something powerful happening right now? Oh, absolutely. I, people ask me, you know, how do we celebrate pride now in the pandemic without the pride parades that are occurring, you know, that have occurred for the past few decades. And I say, you know what, you're seeing pride happening right now. Just yesterday, you know, as you alluded to, 50,000 people marched as part of a queer liberation march in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and with Black Trans Lives Matter. I think those marches, which are explicitly resisting police brutality and oppression and declaring that Black Trans Lives Matter, that is the future of pride because that is what pride used to be. It used to be a fight, not just against the oppression of homosexuals, of cis gay white men. Pride began as an intersectional fight against all oppression. And that is exactly what we need to be fighting for now, but have it led by those within our own community who also experience oppression because of racism, because of transphobia, because of misogyny. And those were the people who were the first to fight for us and who we now have a moral obligation to be elevating, to be leading us, and to be guiding us now. Well said. I've been saying that the last few weeks as well, and I I think you made a fantastic Instagram uh, story post yesterday about it, because I've often said pride isn't about the Budweiser tent over next to the main stage there, right? Talk about what we really need to do to reclaim pride means, what the original intents were. Absolutely. I'm glad you used that word reclaim because that really is what we're doing because pride, as I mentioned, existed first as an act of resistance. The very first pride, almost exactly 50 years ago, the part of the official schedule included picketing Governor Rockefeller's office in New York City. It included uh, economic gay power workshops and political organizing workshops. Every single social event, dances or whatever have you, was to raise money for activist organizations. So I think that is exactly the spirit that, as you said, we need to be reclaiming. We need to say, this is how it started. This is the fundamentals of what pride is and should be. And that's how we, I think we need to rebuild it. And this pandemic, I believe, gives us the opportunity to pause, as I said, to take a breath and to reflect and to say, okay, let's bring pride back to its foundations and make it about fighting back. Exactly. And and no one asked me, of course, Eric, but I definitely feel, I mean, there's a time to get together. I think we need to celebrate 
a community because we need to have a place for our younger LGBTQ plus people to congregate with old and meet each other. So a festival is not a bad in and of itself, but the pride March, sure. I think a lot of our art of our, about the history needs to be a more somber, more serious event and needs to stay in that protest mode. Don't you think? Right. And, uh, you know, I've gone to a few of the Black Lives Matter protests, and yet there is a lot of anger and, and sadness and despair and remembrance of those who have been killed. But it also doesn't need to be an entirely somber event. You can resist and have it also be full of joy and full of community. And you see time and time again throughout history, and it's a big theme in my book, that persecution gives rise to community uh, without the government telling us that we are despised, that we are immoral, that we are illegal, there would not be a gay community. There would not be a pride parade each June. Um, And so I think, yes, we should make it about resistance, but it doesn't necessarily need to be a somber event, but it does need to be explicitly fighting against uh, those who are trying to destroy us today. And, you know, you mentioned a festival, the very first pride uh, march in 1970, yes, it was a march, but it ended in Central Park. It actually flowed in the opposite direction. It went north to Central Park. And the primary event of the day, the most biggest attended event was a, a really a love-in, a sit-in in Central Park, where people were just gathering, having a, good, having a good time, you know, socializing with their friends and being themselves. might be harder to do now, but that is a big part of Pride as well. It's also about community. So I think it's possible to have both of those things while also stripping it uh, from all these, you know, corporate, uh, really parasites that are just using something that we built for ourselves uh, to increase their bottom line. I love that you said that in your video yesterday, because I do believe the corporate uh, corporatization, the monetization of pride has turned into a huge thing. You talk about the price of just having an exhibit there. You talk about them using it for their own agendas. I thought it was very profound talking about the commercialization of it and having them co-opting pride for the selling Uh, of products and the things like that. And I thought you said it so well. Uh, And just kind of Mm -hmm. expand upon that a little bit, if you don't mind. Well, I think companies now take for granted that if you slap a rainbow onto your vodka bottle, or onto your Listerine, that you are doing enough for pride. And don't get me wrong, I think it is good that companies want to show their solidarity. But I think now in 2020 and beyond, the way to do that is to put your money where your mouth is. If you want to use a rainbow on your products, then 100% of the proceeds need to go to uh, LGBTQ plus activist organizations who are fighting for black trans lives, who are protecting those who are being murdered on a biweekly basis. That is where those funds need to be going, not to creating a massive marketing campaign, not to creating a giant obscenely uh, extravagant float, but give it to the organizations who are actually doing the hard work and fighting on the ground. And if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is, then I think we have to ask, what is the true intention of these companies? And also for the employees who are a part of those companies, sure, march, take part in our uh, uh, marches in, against, resist, uh, uh, against oppression, but you, know, you should be able to do that as an individual. You shouldn't have to register as a company or as an organization to take part 
in a pride march, you should be able to do whatever you want and declare your pride as part of the larger community. Well said. And talk about what is the next step now with his. I'm so impressed by your book, and I've been calling for LGBT history to be brought about more and more. How can we get this as part of the culture? I mean, that's part of the thing we're trying to do with Black Lives Matter is to get black history. I mean, Juneteenth was not included in history books, really. Um, How do we combine that and how do we work with our black brothers and sisters to get queer history included in a curriculum or at least out there for people to know about? Well, so much of history that is taught in high schools is about straight slave owning men, uh, white men in history, Uh, whether it's the founding fathers, whether it's about, you know, uh, the the colonizers coming over and committing genocide in our uh, in this continent that did not belong to them. And I think telling history from the perspective of the oppressed, saying that those people, the oppressors, these straight white men, were the minority, the ones with money, the aristocracy, were the tiny, tiny sliver of the human condition throughout history. You have to tell history from the bottom up and how it affected the vast majority of uh, humanity and guess what? That is a very different story than what we learn about in, in high school. And so I think in order to tell American history, I don't think you need to have a separate uh, LGBTQ plus studies course or a separate African-American studies course. We need to be reforming what American history means and prove that you can't tell American history without telling also the story of gay liberation, of queer liberation, uh, of black freedom, of trans freedom. Uh, We have to be starting with the oppressed and telling their stories first. Definitely. Well said on that. And who do you really hope sees your book? Who is your target audience to really kind of start learning these things? If you had to pick someone that you were writing this book for, who would you say you wrote it for? You know, I have to say I wrote it for students and young gay kids or queer kids who, like me, did not realize how little they knew about queer history. Because when I watched Milk for the first time, I will never forget that feeling of wondering, how did I not know this? And I hope people read my book and have that same feeling of, how did I not know this? And then maybe they learn of a character within the book, because there are a lot of other characters, secondary characters, other than Frank. People like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson and Ernestine Eppinger, Bayard Rustin, people who deserve to have their own giant 500-page books written about them, right? Mm-hmm. And so I hope it compels students or scholars or people who are none of the above to realize that history is open to them. You don't need to have a PhD to conduct historical research. The archives, the Library of Congress, public libraries are open to everyone. Anyone can start a history book. Anyone can write an article about what they found or post a document that they found in the archives online. Anyone can do it. And the moment I will feel most accomplished and the moment I know that I will have succeeded as an author and a historian is when someone tells me that they wrote their book because I inspired them. So I'm waiting for that day. It's not here yet. It'll probably be a few more years, but that's what I'm aiming for. <laughs> You're young. It's going to happen, my friend. Take my word for it. <laughs> we'll see. And now you've accomplished this 
fantastic feat of getting this book out to the masses. What is next on your agenda? What would you like to see? Do you have another windmill you're aiming at, or what is what are you kind of hoping <laughs> to do in your own personal life now? Oh, plenty of windmills in this year of 2020 and, and turbulence and oppression. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> I'm certainly focusing on my activism, and really, I think it, this election is by far the most consequential moment of American democracy since the Civil War. And so I think that is where I will be placing my emphasis, but also using history to show how resistance works and what we need to do and how we need to learn from our past in order uh, to fight oppression and fascism today. Um, We have a guidebook of how to do this and how to fight back. And that is in history. And so we have to look backwards in order to understand how to keep fighting today. So I'm going to do whatever I can, uh, but also just keep telling people stories and and learning new things, because that's what history is really about, is discovering uh, and excavating new knowledge and things that have been forgotten. Uh, And so I'm so excited to, to keep working on that front as well. There you go. And past is prologue. And it's, I would love to see history being made today for our LGBTQ plus community to read about in the next 5, 10, 20 years. So Dr. Eric Savini, it's been amazing having you on the show today. Thank you so much for taking the time, my friend. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Be sure to let all my listeners know where they can find the book and you have a very good social media presence. Talk about that. Let everyone know where they can find you, my friend. Sure. (laughs) That's a good point. My publicist would be very mad at me. I, uh, I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Eric Cervini, E-R-I-C-C-E-R-V as in Victor, I-N-I. And the book is The Deviant Sport, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. It's available on Amazon and at independent bookshops, anywhere you can buy books. And also at, at most libraries, everywhere should have it eventually. It's taking a little bit longer right now because of the pandemic. But uh, anywhere you can find books, you can find The Deviant Sport. Fantastic. Listeners, get out there and get this book. Support it. Eric, stay on the line for me, guys. We're going to go ahead and play out your little song. I'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Great time. Oops. I got confused what we were doing. I didn't know if we were playing the song or not. (laughs) Sorry about that. All right, guys. It looks like we are live here. Me and Han are just off case here because I wasn't paying attention. Guys, we are back and running live here on the Left of Straight Show. So sorry about that. Shout out to my guest today, Adam Rothenberg from New York City. Call me Adam blog, vlog, and podcast. Be sure to check that out. Rosemary Ketchum, history-making transgender city councilwoman from Wheeling, West Virginia. Good luck in your first term of office and hopefully many more to come and higher office as well. And Dr. Eric Cervini, Eric, thanks so much for your passion for LGBTQ history I really appreciate having you all on the show tonight. Um, Han, get ready. We're going to play Casey when we finish here in just a second. But let's go ahead and get ready for tomorrow night's show. We're going to have our weekly pop culture 
minute with J&J Buzz's own Josh and Jeff out of Nashville, Tennessee. They're going to have their words of wisdom for the week. And then I have two great interviews coming up first live is writer and filmmaker Tim Zientic. He has a great new web series we're going to talk about. And then I'm going to do a pre-taped interview with Dr. Steve Iacovelli. We had a great chat the other day. He's known as the Gay Leadership Dude, and he is a fantastic coach for all things business-related, helping the LGBT community evolve and move on. And we're doing uh, a great little talk tomorrow. And he's going to have some great uh, giveaways for the audience tomorrow. So I'm excited to have that happen. So be sure to tune in to tomorrow's show. We're going to have a great time had by all. And I think that's it. We're going to be here the rest of the week, though, every day through Friday. I'm going to let you know about the Big Gay Road Trip Thursday as we get a little closer to it. And we will go from there. So tomorrow night, we'll be here 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern Time, same Thursday and Friday. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week. Have a good hump day tomorrow. We're going to play out to our good buddy, Miss Casey Lansdale, tonight. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a great night, everyone. Bye-bye. Cat drug in. I heard you might have lost a new girlfriend. And knock, knock, knock. Guess who's at my door? Now you're talking like you've lost your mind. Standing here handing me the same old lines. How you want to go back to what we had before? Say there's nothing that you won't do to prove your You think that's sweet Tell me boy How dumb do you think I am Does this look like a swinging door Your little key don't fit no more I think it's time You find a better plan Baby.
that's a fact. You're sorry, I ain't taking you back. You're sorry, I'm better than that. Cause sorry ain't enough. Try begging, try pleading, try getting down on your knees. And balling and crawling and crawling back. It's gonna take a whole lot. Sorry, all right. Sorry. 